Happy Wednesday, everybody. And here we are with the fire sign hot guys. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, Dylan, thanks for popping in on the last minute. I just caught a whim to do this talk based on some stuff I've been reading lately. And you're always good for adding perspective to these topics of comparative religion and mythology. And, you know, we can't do it without Gabe. What's up, buddies? How you guys been? I've been awesome. Thank you for having me. It's always a, a treat to hang out with you guys. And I love these, um, these types of episodes because I don't feel any pressure. Like I'm just hanging out and it's kind of like a supporting role and that I enjoy that more than like having to carry an episode as like a guest, you know? So thank you for thinking of me. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the plan is I've got some slides, not too many. This isn't a Loki marvelous demystifier situation. <laughs> <laughs> working on the next one. Those take a while to cook up. Uh, okay. I'm getting a comment about my mic in the chat should be the correct mic. Is it too quiet? Am I coming through quiet? Hmm. That seems low. Okay. I'll turn it up a little. You guys, Thanks. maybe a little bit crank it. All right. Am I good now? Knocking all my shit over. Okay. <laughs> so this is as loud as it's going to go. Just turn up your YouTube if you got to. So no, anyway, we're going to talk about the serpent of Genesis, particularly why I want to have this conversation. I mean, we definitely won't be doing the extensive everything about it, full understanding of that symbol or that the Genesis story, but just wanted to hone in on that particular thing, the serpent and the devil, as a way to describe the progression of idolatry and how I'm coming to understand what is going on when we look at the different religions of the world and their relative historical placement, how they spin off from one another, how things snowball is a good way of putting it. I will be considering the Ophite sect of Christianity, or also known as Gnostics, and Buddhists. Those are some of the things on the table. I'll be just going through my slides and reading off of my notes that I've got prepared and then seeing what kind of ideas bounce around from our, our panelists here. Okay, I'm getting turn up my mic again. How dare you, PK? How dare you? There, I turned it up even more. That's got to do something. Is that any better? Yeah, now you're back in like business. The same. At least on my end. Anybody? Anybody? I'm not hearing Dylan now either. I can't hear you guys. Oh my gosh, tech problems. All right. Hello, hello, hello. Check one, two, check one, two. Um, is interesting because while um, I was working on my book today, uh, my latest one, and I'm, I'm editing chapter 11, and ironically, it's talking about... Um, all the serpentine figures that you see in India versus the serpentine figures that you see in uh, Europe and everywhere else. And like these places are seemingly so far apart, but the symbols are so intricate and it's the complexity of the symbols, right? There's like basic symbols that 
you can um, chalk up to human imagination. It's what we see in nature, whether it's the cross, triangle, square, circle. These basic things are fine. But once every layer of complexity you add to it, every uh, archetype you ascribe it to, you're now getting to this overarching, very specific system that it can't be chalked up to coincidence. Yeah, that's really well said. I think that is exactly the way to consider what we're going to be looking at today with the layers of the symbolism between Buddhism, the Old Testament, Christianity's New Testament, all of the and Hinduism, all of the above. It's a, it's a big syncretic mess where it's way too similar beyond any, any probability of chance where it all originated we don't know dylan's the one who's hot on the trail of all that i uh, also want to shout out your Substack. the uh, recent real quick ape um rachel said i was booming is my mic coming in too hot do i need to turn it down no i think you're fine <laughs> she just she, she just likes you she's picking on you it's like uh when you're in elementary school <laughs> So anyway, I wanted to shout out Fresh Batch number 131 on your Substack Checkmate. There's a lot of good stuff in that article and wondered if you might want to talk about what's new uh, that you've been putting out there for your subscribers. Yeah, I came, um, I found this, that inscription. Um, so like, I didn't necessarily set out to write a book. Uh, I just am publishing my research and I'm showing everybody my process. So everybody who's been subscribed, you can see how it materializes. And eventually you get enough information on the same subject where you're like, that's a book. And then I came across in the most unlikely places. Um, it's like a grammar book. I don't want to say it's a lexicon, but it kind of is in that realm called Archaeologia Britannica by Edward Lloyd or Lloyd. Um, and he cited somebody from the 16th uh, sorry, excuse me, the 17th century. So 1671. And it's a Latin inscription. So if you don't translate it, you're not going to know what it means because they don't, they presume the readers back then um, recognize the language. And it's basically confirming everything that without a doubt, the Celtic and the Etruscan, the Roman, all these languages, they must come from the same source. And what I'm doing is I'm demonstrating that it's coming from Etruscan because the Etruscan, which um, some the Greeks called Turanians, um, they also they were also called the Pelagians. Nobody's really known the names of these people because we're all basing our names of them off of subsequent cultures. And I think this is going to tie into what we're going to talk about tonight is because um, when we look at this symbolism and idolatry in specific, uh, or specifically, I should say. Is it really idolatry we're looking at? Or do we think it's idolatry because our ignorant historians, who are all products of a, a dark ages, post-dark ages, and have lost a connection to those cultures, their own cultures, by the way, and now they're just telling us what they think it is. Oh, these ignorant people, they worshipped all these gods and committed all this idolatry. 
but it might be more uh, sophisticated than that. And I would like to offer to people that maybe some, you know, we do see idolatry among the unwashed masses, if you will. No question about it. Look at the celebrity culture, the way people are popular online for doing absolutely nothing productive. But you have to you have to um, be kind and uh, appreciative of the fact that when a lot of this stuff is existing, the world is a much more unexplained, magical place back then. You might not have known what caused lightning, what caused earthquakes, what caused volcanoes, all these things that are acts of God. And even when we know the cause of them, I know what this stuff is. I, I you know, tornadoes, et cetera. And I still get scared when I'm out and like, if I'm out fishing and it starts thundering and lightning and it's like nearby, it's terrifying. And so like you, you see these things like, well, we know what that is now, but imagine what it's like before they knew what that is. And so you have all this mythology. And then furthermore, you don't have the ability to produce calendars to produce. You don't have technology to keep time. You know, you have to do sundials and all this other stuff. And then you have to reckon the year and keep track of what time of year the most important chores need to get done for survival, if you will. And that's what the overarching function of mythology is in the ancient world. It actually serves a purpose, but it's the re- like, uh, I'm not going to say this word. John Lundwall, the other day we had him on and he describes mythology as technical jargon. Like you would have lawyer speak or doctor speak and it's technical jargon to retain like to encode or retain this information of calendars and all the other wisdom about the natural world i like what you're saying a lot and i put idolatry in the title is maybe a little inflammatory but i'm considering it like the idea of fetishism not fetish like sexual but fetish and that's where well it's it still pronounced the same way it's just spelled that oh. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I like it's still spelled with this. Yeah. But it is kind of good. Distinguish it. But essentially, yeah. that's the idea that later peoples have the icons and emblems and symbols of their ancestors, but they lost the meaning of it, but they still venerate the symbol without really knowing what it really means. And that's pretty much what, what I'm describing when I put idolatry in the title. Maybe not to be like a jab or definitely in the time where a particular emblem gets added to the canon it was understood as symbolic it wasn't like they literally thought the serpent was you know the devil or see a serpent out in nature and go and you know do a cross at it right spit on the ground so yeah the or the, the origin of the symbol is is in wisdom usually but then as things get layered on and we'll see how that goes i think uh, if you guys are cool unless you want to make further comments i'll just start us on the path of the things that I, I had to bring up tonight. I've got a couple of things I want to layer on Dylan laid out. Um, one is, is this a broken lineage? And if we can prove it's a broken lineage, does that devalidate it at all? To what degree does it devalidate it? If we can prove these breaks, but also it is alarming when we find consistency that implies an unbroken lineage in the symbols that's pretty significant. And giving rise to cause is technical jargon from Black's Law. This is what a judge is determined to do. So I love this idea of true words of causality are captured as terms of art. And maybe that's a good way to lay the thesis out in a single sentence. 
that true causality is captured as terms of art. I have a rough draft theory that true causality has nine flavors and fits in my Enneagram in a fascinating way. And you might have to call causality deified words just to save time. Oh, Gabe, I forgot to tell you, uh, the, since the last time we hung out, I took my test on the Enneagram and I'm actually, you thought I was a one, I'm actually an eight, but almost, almost the exact same share of one. So you were, you were right in a, in a way. Nice. Technically I'm an eight. Yeah. It's like the most yeah, ass kicking potential combination. Yeah, man. I totally see it. You're like, that's the best combo. That's totally you, man. Cause it's a double action. You're double action. You're like, I act first and I act second. And then I make sure I'm acting right. <laughs> That's great. And aggressive. <laughs> uh, shout out to my mom. She's watching the stream and even in the live chat. That is a rare treat. And she's in Aruba right now getting her island vacation on. Ooh. So must be nice, right? Good to, good to see you in the chat, Mom. I'm really glad you're here. I hope you hang out and hear the whole talk. It's going to be awesome. Aruba, Bahama, come on, pretty mama. I love that song. Wow, it's like literally about her right now. Okay, so don't have a lot of slides, but lots to talk about for the slides. First, I'm going to kick off, and this this entire conversation is inspired by a chat like one chapter in the massive book anacalypsis and so we're just kind of looking at see one you chapter. in five years yeah I've, I've been i've been reading this book for about two years it's it's enormous but this is godfrey higgins where he says the three most celebrated emblems carried in the greek mysteries were the phallus the egg and the serpent or otherwise the phallus the yoni or umbilicus and the serpent. The first in each case was the emblem of the sun, of fire, of the male or active generative power, the second of the passive, and the third of the destroyer, the reformer, and thus of the preserver, the preserver eternally renewing itself. The universality of the serpentine worship or adoration no one can deny. It is not only found everywhere, but it everywhere occupies an important station. And the farther back we go, the more universally it is found, and the more important it appears to have been considered. And then for everybody, just a reference where he says umbilicus, he's talking about the symbol of the umphalos, or like the sacred center, the navel. This word umbilicus, and Gabe, I know you're thinking umbilical cord, <laughs> but seemingly comes from the Latin umbo, which is a shield boss, like uh, a a material that's added to a shield to make, to add a concave or convex, you know, addition in the center. So why, okay. So why this quote, this is just to show that in terms of icons, these might've been some of the first that were added to the priest system. You know, these, if we're talking about something that's really everywhere, it's these ones, serpent, phallus, egg, and the, Hmm. You know, what, what kind of serpent that gets interesting that possibly could put us on and we'll talk about it later, but that could possibly put us on track of like when or where geographically that symbol was picked up. But Dylan, I'm wondering from you, because uh, I know you really have your eyes. I was, at, I was about to just ask you for permission to elaborate. <laughs> yeah, please. I'm wondering from you, like specifically what I'm wondering from you is what have you seen in 
the ancient Italy Etruscan world or the Celts regarding serpents or a particular kind of serpent? So if you look up um, there, so one of the most predominant uh, locations, the city states in Etruria was Volteri. And what's interesting about the, a lot of the major centers of the Etruscan uh, nation or uh, city states is that their Roman names, they're all pluralized. So it'd be like calling America Americans. So there's something there that I haven't quite figured out that I, you know, I don't, I don't know what to make of it yet, but I've noticed that's odd about it. But anyways, with Volterra, if you look up, they have um, Triton. There's uh, all kinds of artifacts of these, the, the status quo claims it's Triton, but there's no inscription next to it. And Triton is going to be Greek just based on its termination. It looks like a Greek word, right? Um, there's a lot of that. And these, the reason Volteri is uh, significant is it provided the Roman Empire as early or as late as the uh, like the second century BC with all of its ship riggings and uh, everything nautical. And you'll see this; it's right next to a river that goes to um, uh, Florence. And this is one of the keys to the unification of Etruria. And it's one of the earliest of the uh, the maritime empire, if you will. You can see they're descended from because when they look at their urns and the tombs, and unfortunately, that's the, the, the difficult thing about history is we're basically defining people or like exploring a culture based on what we find in their cemeteries. Can you imagine being judged by... Like someone trying to say, figure out the way your town operated by just going to your cemetery and digging it up. It's, it's not really that reliable. But this symbolism is replete throughout uh, Italy's history, and you'll see, it, you'll see it everywhere. But yeah, the thing, if you look up, it's Volateri, which would be uh, V-O-L-A-T-E-R-R-A-E. And you'll remember, you'll recall that Terra is Earth, but that RL enter- interchange, you'll see Telus, which is Terra. And Telus is going to be that Earth deity that's also seen in Carthage. And people will say that a lot of this stuff is coming from India, but I'm, all of my work is demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt it's coming from Italy and it's reaching India based on Italian uh, exploration. And um, but to elaborate on that umphalos and all that stuff, another name for Bacchus was triumphalos. And um, I was actually just I published an article today that included excerpts from the book that you bought me called The Migration of Symbols. And uh, that's worthy of looking at. And it's talking about there's a thrice great, but also a tetragram, a magic of four. You have tetragrammaton, right? The magic of four. But then you have Hermes. Trismegistus, right? Or Trismegistus, however you say that G. I don't know how they pronounce it in, in the ancient world. That thrice great nature of the sun, well, it's what we see in the day. You see sunrise, noon, sunset. Hence that MES in the city of Mesumbria, signifying the city of the midday sun, right? Second part of Hermes or Mercury, right? Er, A-E-R, or truncated as er or ar you'll see an ari r river 
you see in all the languages, air, air, and then mess, a midday. And this all signifies midday sun. You'll see on these coins with swastikas, or as they're called in the ancient world, gamadions. Um, and this is, this is where you get to that complexity of that system where you, you know it's not, uh, it's not coincidence. But anyways, that, th- that thrice great nature can be seen in the daytime, but then you'd have the subterranean sun or the sun at night or in the underworld. You see that in the microcosm of the day, but then you see it in the macrocosm of the year. So you'd have those four points, the solstices and the equinoxes. However, the equinox doesn't matter which portion of the year you're going into. It's the same declination of, of judging the world, right? The sun is that judge, judges the world equally in day and night. It's that black and white checkerboard. So that's thrice great. If you were to draw it out linearly, right, you'd have omphalos, right, the navel, the equator, North and your feet south, Capricorn, right? Aries, Capricorn. If you were to look at it, it would be those three points. So if you turn the Freemason tracing board on its side, you'll see it with the two pillars uh, and uh, the ionic pillars, the equator. You'll see it um, in the papal cross with those three lines. You see it in the Phoenician letter Samek, which is like the S. So it's everywhere. So depending on how you look at it, if you were to draw it like an overhead view, it would be like a, a pyramid or that solar cross. But if you were to look at it north to south, you would have the three lines because the, it goes from Cancer, Equator, Capricorn, back to Cancer. Back, sorry, back to the Equator, back to Capricorn. And that's what you see on like all the British flags and all that stuff. And the papal tiara. That's uh, one of my favorite examples of it. The three layer cake on the Pope's head. All right. So continuing on, we just started, you know, we're just getting a taste. Uh, let's talk you know, about who one are thing these on the Masonic tracing board. Oh, you got it, Gabe. Go for it. Uh, I might be lagging. Okay. Am I clear? Am I clear? All right. Uh, one thing I found on the Masonic tracing board that I pay, I offer forward to everybody here is that ladder in the often is in the background. Sometimes suspended. Mario knows a great deal about that ladder. Um, I have found this to be the ladder of Socrates' highest ideal in his description of Diotima Montanea from the symposium is literally described as an ascension process to uh, access the highest form of beauty. But I think that there's a lot of playfulness and a lot of silly puns that are hidden all through the philosopher's works. And I think what's funny about using a ladder is that what is above you will always be the next guy's booty. (laughs) And it's the ladder of ascension going to seeking beauty. But this is also the corporate model of you kiss to get up and you kick down. You kiss up and you kick down. So this ladder is ancient, and it's like the oldest inside joke, and it's uh, it's almost not funny anymore. But I just wanted to give people its root in this. That's a really interesting take with the snakes and ladders. I never thought about that because Jacob, Yah, Yak, God, the Son, and then Ob would look like Aleph, uh, uh, Vav, Bet, 
AUB, but it's like yeah, OB. That's oh, serpent. We got some AUB. We got some AUB yeah. in this episode to talk about. Serpent Sun Ladder, right? Jacob's Ladder. Snakes and ladders. There's truth in even the like hidden truth and even the most simple popular culture things. But yeah, let's talk about these Ophites. I got some stuff to talk about here. Just going to go with what we'll talk about what's said about them. And then as we go, we'll, we'll consider, you know, what is maybe the truth about it. Cause if this is one of those sects that gets painted by history with, uh, you know, the idolaters label and by the early church, but just reading from, Encyclopedia Britannica, it says the Ophites are any of several Gnostic sects that flourished in the Roman Empire during the second century A.D. and for several centuries thereafter. A variety of Gnostic sects, such as the Nicenes and Canaanites, are included under the designation Ophites. These sects or no, not Canaanites, just Canaanites, <laughs> different, <laughs> not Canaan, but Canaanites as in like the followers of Cain from the uh Book of Genesis. These sects' beliefs differed in various ways, but central to them all was a dualistic theology that opposed a purely spiritual supreme being who was the both the origin of the cosmic process and the highest good to a chaotic and evil material world. To the Ophites, man's dilemma results from his being a mixture of these conflicting spiritual and material elements. Only Gnosis, the esoteric knowledge of good and evil, can redeem man from the bonds of matter and make him aware of the unknown God who is the true source of all being. The Ophites allegedly regarded the Jehovah of the Old Testament as merely a demiurge or subordinate deity who had created the material world. They attached special importance to the serpent in the biblical book of Genesis because he had enabled men to obtain the all-important knowledge of good and evil that Jehovah had withheld from them. Accordingly, the serpent was the true liberator of mankind since he first taught men to rebel against Jehovah and seek knowledge of the true unknown God. The Ophites further regarded the Christ as a purely spiritual being who, through his union with the man Jesus, taught the saving Gnosis. So I'm going to make a few caveats here. The <laughs> Most of what we know about this Ophite sect comes from the church fathers who are accusing the Ophites of heresy. And then the secondary sources we have about these guys are from mostly from the Nag Hammadi scriptures, which were found... The same year the CIA was created, or at least openly formed, and is uh, Nag Hammadi comes from like a UN project, the translation of it and the distribution of those texts. So it's really sketchy that, you know, there could just be a lot of uh, intentional misinformation painted about and creating this idea of Ophites and the, the old Gnostics maybe as a smokescreen to protect the the. Uh, the history model that the early church set up that has been continued as the foundation for all the reason why we have the current world governments and power system. So like as an example of the church fathers accusing the Ophites of heresy and where we get a lot of the information about them, this is from the Jewish encyclopedia, <laughs> Irenaeus, who toward the end of the second century wrote a history of heresy, did not know the Gnostics under the name of Ophites, but Clement mentions besides the Canists, the Ophani, saying that their name is derived from the object of their worship. Philaster, an author of the 4th century, places the Ophites, the Canites, and the Sethites at the head of all heresies because he holds that they owed their origin to the serpent or the devil. The uh, Allegedly, the Ophites 
and related groups declared the serpent of paradise to be wisdom itself, Logia or Sophia. Since wisdom had come to earth through the knowledge of good and evil, which the serpent had brought. Also, allegedly, they exalted <laughs> Cain and Seth, who they held were endowed with this knowledge as the heroes of the human race. The church fathers accused them, the Gnostics, as regarding Esau and the Sodomites and even Judas as the tools of Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, where and um, Jacob and Moses being the instruments of the demiurge and therefore inferior. Again, it's all just basically coming from Irenaeus and other related authors. So uh, that there even were groups called this or that believe this is up for debate. But what does exist are these artifacts and engravings and inscriptions and things that depict uh, Yao, I, Iota, Alpha, Omega, uh, what we call Abraxas as well. And, <clears throat> you know, symbolism that seems to portray connection to Jesus and the serpent, which you don't even have to leave the canon books of the Old Testament to establish that connection. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But yeah, Dylan, your thoughts on on these uh, alleged histories of the Ophites? Don't you think it's curious how on the the left, how it says Mani, it's written from left to right, how we would read in English. But then on the right side, Semese, is, uh, it's written like Etrusian. And um, something that I came across, I put it out in an article a few weeks back. I don't remember the date, but I noticed on some of the ancient pottery, the Etruscan names are written from right to left, but the Greek archetypes are written from left to right on the same pottery. And I wonder if that was the artist's way of indicating that when you see that, it's indicating an Etruscan origin, while the deities that's written left to right are indicating a Greek origin. And that's something for people to consider if they, as they um, find their archaeological or they explore this archaeological stuff more. But in regards to what you said, the fathers, uh, the divines have shown and demonstrated time and time again that they are not men of good character. And that's the reason why they claim to be good men, right? Christians, Christianos, right? So they're constantly projecting and I think a lot of the stuff that, or a lot of the people you call heretics, you have your worldview coming from people who are like the same types of people who uh, might do something to a woman non-consensually and then preemptively start a smear campaign to assassinate the woman's character. So when she comes forward and tells people what he did to her, they'll think, oh, well, she's a crazy, you know what? I think that's what's going on here. And that's why they're constantly demonizing. Like, what's the number one word you hear when 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 people talk about this symbolism? What do people associated with Abrahamic traditions call them? Pagans. Yeah. And that's not a word that comes into derogatory form to like the same time the church gets formed and they have their takeover. So what I'm saying, like harkening back to the beginning is I think a lot of the stuff we called idolatry, they weren't committing idolatry. They actually used this symbolism to reckon things in life and survive. And the church and these divines, since they're taking that system and hijacking it, they now have to demonize everybody else. So nobody sees how blatant their forgeries, their lies, their plagiarism, everything else is. 
and exposes them for the cheap imitation of it. And if you look at all the early fathers of Christianity, without exception, I mean, they quote the Apocrypha more than anything, but without exception, they all come from the mystery schools in Alexandria. So I think uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on and there's a lot of bad behavior going on. They're the ill omen naughty. They're being naughty. And that's why I I think a lot of these accusations that were being made have to do with like, were you a part of the corporate body that they call the church or they call the university of Alexandria or college of Alexandria? Uh, Are you part of that corporate body? Are you approved an approved apostolici as they would call it? Or were you a false apostle? Meaning you broke away and were trying to do your own thing or, you know, work outside of the system and not give the, uh, the Godfather is cut. <laughs> the good fellas needed their their cut. I think it's just like, yeah, classic mafia stuff overall, for sure. Yeah, and that's, if you look at it, that's, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge this, but that's why it's so well organized. Like, they are behind the government, and it's a system that's so well organized that when you get initiated into it, you are now property of the system, you now follow orders. And if you don't, if you, you know, get caught stealing from the cult, get caught trying to form your own version of it, get caught doing anything that is a threat to the system, you get taken out. So it's not like they're even murdering uh, the rest of the world so much as themselves. It it really is like the Ouroboros in, in a sense where it's the people who are in the most danger are the people who are part of the system and get out of line with it. That's why I would never join it. You know, even though I've grown up with a lot of people around it and the majority of my adult life has been around people, I would never join it because I, I don't like having to keep secrets. I'm good at keeping secrets, but I like to be able to talk about what I want to talk about and not answer to any fucking Don. And ironically, Italians, going back to what I was saying, we call the heads of our families that word root Don means Lord. Right. So it's like the patriarch. Mm-hmm. And that's a Phoenician radical. That's why it's, it's also it's one in, of those three times of the day that mark the progression of the sun, the dawn. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Exactly. That's exactly it. See, this is the these are the types of notes that you need to take chance and write them down, because this is all stuff you you can write about. And as right. you revisit those in like a year, you'll have even more to say about them. I'm getting better and better systematizing my thoughts and notes. We're, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bear with me. Maybe by the time I, I'm yes. at as many, as many solar revolutions as you are, I hope to have some stuff out there for sure. Get it, Gabe. So, so I got, I got something on the dons, the dons, these Kings, these, uh, these impressive ones. Oh, am I, am I good? Am I coming through? Okay. The dawns are signified by terror events. And this is baked into our DNA. And there are priest class who know how to build us up to these eclipse major standstills. So that cycle is encoded by the North Node and the South Node. And some people call the North Node, the, the, their enemies call the head, the tail, the tail, the head. So they're always fighting over well, which is on which side. 
but those nodes are signified by shackles. Um, and those shackles, uh, the symbol for nodes are just like open shackles from old slavery days. But I want to tell everybody that the letter S is the letter of ownership. It's the possessive letter. It is the letter of shh, those who are in the know. And now the secret, the secret of secrets of what is good and what is evil is signified by the S. And anytime you're getting caught up in, oh, that's good, or this is evil, I'm here to tell you, this is because you are possessive. You are possessed of a higher ideal. There's somebody told you there's a ladder with a goddess on top that you got to go kiss ass to get to the top of. That is the S that you are kissing. And so when you're getting caught up in good and evil, there's something possessing you that you're serving outside of yourself. Maybe, maybe. Sometimes there's a self-righteous way to come into these things without the S of the external. So the S is possession. I just want to throw that. It makes both sound. So the further you go back. uh, Somebody's going to pat me on the back after I'm dead. Sorry, I didn't realize there was like a break on my end. It sounded like you stopped. But in the older, the further you go back in the languages, the S is not differentiated by two different forms or two different uh, like dot points or whatever. It's the same. Like you'll see Shin, not Samek in Hebrew in the old synagogue. And so there, you know, it, it, it is interesting that 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 word is a power and it looks like a snake. And it's it's everything to do with the cycles and um, right, even that ob that you see in um, uh, Jacob. You also see it in Kerob, right, which is also going to be Ker which is related to time and ob uh, serpent. So um, you had a great super chat. We got a shout out uh, cucumber there. I don't know if people get that inside joke, but that comes from uh, when they were making that show, the Sopranos. Well, for people just listening, he says the Don doesn't wear shorts. Yes. When they were making the Hollywood is depicting Jane Gandolfini wearing fucking shorts and like flip flop and, and somebody called him in the middle of the night (laughs) from the from the from the life we'll say and was like yeah dons don't wear shorts and hung up the phone (laughs) (laughs) uh no respect no respect all right i'm gonna okay i'm gonna come up with the next slide here well that what i'll say about the letter s that i think is interesting that was coming to mind is how in greek the word oaf or Ophis is a serpent. But if you add the sound that the serpent makes to the beginning of that, Ophis, Sophia, you get the word for wisdom, Sophia. So <laughs> we're going to talk about a lot about the snake symbolizing divine wisdom, but there's a, there's a way right there. Now here we have an illustration of the serpent of Eden and Adam and Eve the mystical reason that the Ophites did they or whoever is being called the Ophites would have made the serpent of Genesis the emblem or icon of the creator or the true God is because his persuasion of Eve to eat the apple made the serpent uh, essentially essentially the immediate cause of the propagation of the human species. If that hadn't happened, there would be there'd be no kids, there'd be no continuation, no generations. And in Genesis 3, 7, it says, and the eye after they eat the apple, 
And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed or they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So the opening of the eyes in Genesis 3 7, that's talking about the erotic desire for each other being sparked. Without that desire to procreate, there would be no future, no continuation of mankind. So basically the serpent instigates the creation of all future human beings, which is why the serpent is considered to be the emblem of the creator. The serpent made man in this respect wise because without that spark of erotic energy, man would have remained in a state of innocent ignorance and like the lack of procreation, man's thoughts would also have been basically, you know, fruitless, forever unprolific without the creativity we associate human beings as having. So the allegory of the serpent being the cause of the eventual death of Adam and Eve and thus mankind as the entry of sin into the world, their fate to return to dust, along with the initiation of the erotic force that the serpent brings, which is Eros, the savior you were just talking about earlier, Ur, Er, Adermes. And the, so along with the initiation of the erotic force, the human formative or creative power with it shows that the doctrine here is destruction is regeneration. That if death was not introduced into the world, then mankind would either remain as an infertile pair or multiplied. They would have been multiplied out of control with no death, one or the other. But either way, mankind would basically be annihilated and wouldn't perpetuate onto the future. So in this way, the introduction of procreation and death in one act with the serpent is symbolic of the preserver or savior aspect too. So right there, you have the serpent as the emblem of the Trinity. Destruction, creation, destruction, regeneration, or, or savior. So that's, and the destruction is regeneration. That's, of course, a solar idea of what the sun does in winter because it has to kill all the vegetation so that new vegetation and new life can come about. So that's the best way I think to understand what the serpent of Eden is. And as soon as you start to say it's the literally the devil and you have that scapegoat that is the devil to point out and blame that thing for your problems or why you're not being a better boy, that's idolatry. You know, that's idolatry in the negative sense where you create that, a false external uh, to blame and have an excuse for victim, victim and perpetrator type behavior. I need to get my marvelous demystifiers swerve on right now. This is totally anecdotal, but you see that image, you see the way the branch looks and it even has like three major branches for that triplicity. Well, that letter is actually the way the, the attrition key or CH and it looks like this. So the earlier you go back, the the less it looks like a tree, right? But uh, the more modern it looks like kind of like that, uh, the rune that you see in the Germanic languages, because all of the Germanic alphabets, they come from the Etruscan alphabet out of Clusium. So I just thought that was interesting. And uh, worth, uh, you know, it could be, I, I hate to give somebody credit for knowing that much about all this stuff to put that in what looks like a modern painting, but you never know. Uh -huh. Oh, I got something to add on top of that. So uh, the stake itself resembles the symbol for some. 
And this is basically the plus sign at the end of Disney Plus, LBGT, Elemental PQ Plus. This is telling you there's what's a subtext that, that, that you need to for? keep going. You don't know the full terms of the agreement. You uh, you cut out subsection. We've subsection. Okay, subsection. Oh, so, so subsection. Yeah, subsection is this symbol in law, and it means that there's other text somewhere uh, to. You're not done with the full context of what you're looking for. It is basically like the plus sign at the end of LGBT elemental P plus. Turns out you look at what all the pluses are, and there's Mambla, there's uh, furries, there's all these weird things that you didn't know you were agreeing to. So that is exactly what happened when they ate that apple. There was a terms of the agreement that they didn't read the fine print. In fact, in Milton's paradise lost E. Eve walked away and she didn't hear the whole story of history because she wasn't interested. She went into the snake's trap. So the subtext is still here in the fine print. And I wonder what happens when we cross this with what Dylan just pulled up between the CH. Oh, and that's a symbol for statutes. Statutes. That's a statutory symbol. It's telling us that there are other languages. Yes. We are so out of sync. It's tough. (laughs) We're going to make it work, but we got to, we got to play, uh, Slow pitch, slow catch. So another thing that Higgins says is, uh, I think that no unprejudiced person reading Genesis would ever suspect that the serpent there named was the evil principle or the devil. Are you going to say that again? I think no unprejudiced person reading Genesis would ever suspect that the serpent there named was the evil principle or the devil. Like, go reread it. It's especially from the Hebrew. Go get a like an interlinear interlinear text so you can see what the Hebrew was actually written. The literal meaning both of the text and context, in fact, falsifies any such idea that the serpent was the devil. And yet almost all Christian priests choosing to have recourse to allegory to serve their own purpose, though they never cease abusing those who teach that the book is an allegory. These priests maintain that a real devil or evil principle is meant and that by the text, merely a common serpent is not literally to be understood. And then later Higgins says the devil is the grand ally of priests in these days. Certainly no devil, no priests. So reading Genesis on its own without the book of revelation where it calls the devil, that old serpent there is really no reason to consider that the serpent was the incarnation of the evil principle. Uh, the idea that the serpent was the devil incarnate is a retroactive application of idolatry, in my opinion. The devil being an idol that was never literal to the oldest version of the system, but symbolic of the destructive power necessary for creation. This devil, I, as an idol, becomes a scapegoat. I mean, it's literally depicted with goat features to blame are your, your shortcomings on, which is exactly what idolatry does, creates either a false messiah or a false scapegoat out of a misunderstood allegory and then worships or fears or blames it. So, you, you know, you really can't you really can't call it anything else other than that. Whenever you have like this external cause of your own shortcomings that you, you know, oh, it's original sin, that entire doctrine. That's a big dive that uh, humanity takes once is in mass accepted as a concept. And like Higgins said, that's the grand ally of priests. If you have 
I think that's more persuasive to get people to uh, go to an intercessor or intermediary than even the idea of a savior. I think the devil is even more persuasive to like uh, foolish or uh, uh, immature people of which many are until, especially if they're guided in that way. But I thought this was an interesting thing to consider too, Dylan regarding the destroying power or the evil principle or the symbolism of winter. If you just allow some, basically just some vowel swaps uh, and the P becoming B Ophis is the same word as abyss. You ever thought about that? I have not thought about that. Or if I have, I've forgotten about that, which is why you need to write this down because it I is promise you. Okay. I'm just making sure you're taking notes because that is an incredible, the angel of the abyss. And why is it the angel of the abyss? You in the microcosm dawn, that sun is the angel that is lighting up the night, the abyss at dawn, right? It's in same with winter. It's crossing over. It's bringing us back to the the, the longer days and the days of long shadows are are, going, are behind us, right? That hell, 80s. And um, I just wanted to apologize to Gabe. You are on maybe a record-breaking delay. I think it's like five seconds. So just, I'm going to do my best, but man, slow down the exciting gravy because I can't help myself. Fire. Yeah, and the robot's out just where it's good, like... Wait, what did he say? I don't know what's up with this connection today. We we got him a Wi-Fi booster piece of tech, but it appears to not be working. I think you should just unplug it and plug it back in and see if it starts flashing like it's on. So I really want you to be in sync with us. Last time you were, and it was awesome. But okay, I'm going to just keep our... All right, I'll keep the slides going, I think. Sounds good. Here we've got. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the serpent in Genesis 3 1, where it says the serpent was more subtle than any beast that Yahweh created. So the Hebrew word used actually instead of subtle is ayen uh, resh vav mem, which they translate to say as orum. But essentially, that word means cunning or crafty, cunning or crafty. But interestingly, the word used for subtle, cunning or crafty has a dual meaning of naked. So this at once adds the context to show that the snake represents both wisdom because he's cunning or crafty, but also the erotic force, eros, because the word literally means naked, <laughs> a naked snake. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Speaking of Jesus, he uh he, of course, says, be ye wise as serpents in the Bible. So that's a strong indicator that the serpent is meant to symbolize wisdom, of course. Then, uh, But here's what's important. Jesus existed in heaven before coming to earth. And there's multiple uh, Bible verses that say this. But my favorite is in Colossians, where it says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. Who else is the image of God? It's, uh, I feel like he's a character in Genesis. The image of God. Oh, yeah, Adam. <laughs> Adam and Jesus are the same guy. Uh, incarnations of each other, perhaps. So Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So, reminding you all right now that the words for head and wisdom are the same word in many languages. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. And of this idea of being the firstborn of every creature, that's the exact same story applied to Buddha, the first begotten, the first emanation of divine power, which is wisdom in Kabbalism, the first sphere after the crown, uh, (laughs) Chokmah. And so Buddha, the protagonist, as the Greeks would call it, by whom and for whom all things were created. It's the exact same idea. Uh, Also, this idea of the creative energy, you've heard it called Kundalini. That's still a concept. It's a serpent energy, the creating energy. Higgins thinks that the Ophites or the serpent worshipers have their origin from the belief that the, the destroyer was the creator and the destruction was regeneration because the cobra was seen as the deadliest of snakes and it annually renewed itself by shedding its skin and thus it became an appropriate emblem of the destroyer, regenerator, and savior. So it has that instant kill, deadly venom, destroyer, but it regenerates itself every year without any kind of, uh, you know, (laughs) copulation or something. It just gets a brand new body or brand new skin. Buddha being the creating power is often, almost all the time, uh, depicted as being protected by the destroying power, the cobra. And now let's just look at the, (laughs) the Hindi word for cobra, which is Naga. It's the same if you allow the C or K or H interchange with G, Naga is the same word as the Nagas, I guess, is the same word as Nahash or Nakash, the Hebrew word for serpent that simultaneously means shining one. The serpent is an example of how an emblem becomes an allegory. The allegory becomes an icon and the icon becomes an idol. The modern Gnostics uh, or pop culture Gnostics, they generally believe the whole story that the serpent was the good guy of Genesis maybe even worship him in some way, uh, at least in the old, what we're told from the, the accusations of heresy. But basically when the allegory and the emblems representation of philosophical qualities is lost, what remains is an idol. And definitely that's the case with attributing the devil to this symbol. So why the serpent was the emblem of divine wisdom and not some other animal an emblem for eternity. (laughs) It's the same reason as the Phoenix or the palm tree being the emblem of eternal life, because the serpent possessed that faculty of renewing itself without the process of generation or fructification as to outward appearance by annually casting its skin. And that makes it emblematical of the sun or the year. So we see in this way, how all these allegories rise out of each other (laughs) As Higgins says, almost without end, generally to outward appearance absurd, but when understood, often beautiful. So that's what I think is a a, a very interesting specific thing to zero in on is that it's a cobra in uh, Buddhism that is the, the, the wise serpent or the protecting destructive power. And that's very specific to Southeast Asia, the hooded serpent. And I wonder, I just said a lot of stuff, but I wonder specifically what you make of that, Dylan, if that's I got like a lot. A, okay, good. So the very word, the very word Buddha indicates an old man, which is, signifies wisdom. Now you look at one of the uh, words you left out when you're talking about uh, whether it's 
Ares, like this, this letter in Hebrew, if you look at the hieroglyphic, it's a head. And that's what Resh comes from in Hebrew. Uh, you see it in Arabic, Ras. Uh, in Hebrew, you also see Reshit, right? Bereshit. It doesn't mean in the beginning. It means by wisdom. And when you look at, or when you look at um, the Greek counterpart, Arche, they translate this as in the beginning, and it's not. Arche is head, right? And you'll further confirm this with the Sanskrit or the Hindi, the Indian version of this, which is Raja, which is king. And if the Greeks wanted to say in the beginning, they would say first, and they would say protos, right? Protogonos, the first, right? Firstborn, not Arche. So all this has been corrupted by, by moderns. I'm not even, I'm not even blaming the, the early fathers. I'm, this is all modern, like Bible hub shit. And just to be clear, but, just to be clear, if we were being accurate with the Genesis one, one, <laughs> instead of in the beginning, it would say by wisdom, by wisdom, not in the beginning. The goddesses, because Elohim, Al is the masculine plural of that of God. Ale would be the feminine goddess. And then you terminate it with an I.M., which is usually reserved for masculine terminations. But there are exceptions like Duvim, female bears, or Azim, female goats. So there are instances where I.M. does terminate for female things. So Elohim is actually the goddesses, not God. There's nobody that would look at Hebrew and say a plural word signifies God. Nobody honest. And that's what's important about all this. But now, uh, if you if for anybody wants to look this up, this is one of the many reasons why I claim that this symbolism is coming from Italy, the Mediterranean, Greece, all that stuff, rather than India is because this stuff you see here. If you were to just type in Etruscan or Greek Gorgon, you'll see heads with this same serpentine pattern. But um, the thing about all of these inscriptions that are found in the Mediterranean, they all predate the oldest inscriptions of India. So what I would need to reverse my opinion, which I'm more than happy to do, are inscriptions that predate the ones that are found in uh, the Mediterranean, but nobody seems to do that. Instead, they just throw fit, right? And so what my work is doing is it's basically putting an end to the culture vultures and I'm demonstrating it. I don't need opinions. There's, it's all in the archaeological record if you know what you're looking at. So you're saying basically like the Medusa serpent head goddess as a creator or mother of monsters, in a sense, is prior to Buddha with a cobra hood. And then what happened? Well, I don't know if there are cobras in the Mediterranean one, but you see that like there's like like a shell. There's like uh, an overarching like shell formation out of all of the serpents. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you just type in Etruscan and then Gorgon and images and you'll see it, and you can bring it up and see what I'm talking about. I will. I know what you're, t- I know exactly what you're talking about. And so maybe <laughs> just speculating here, but the Buddha with the cobra hood is like a symbol derived out of things in the environment of India, but that is uh, based on the environment original system coming from maybe Italy. That's, that's your position. And because this stuff is older. Yeah. And Mr. E nailed it in the comment about the snakes being the sun's rays. Yeah, that's, it's the exact same thing, but it's a shell. 
and the sun's rays. So this like layers and layers of <laughs> layers and layers of allegory here. So I got I got something for uh, to bring this to current, just to prove that the priest class is still using these symbols, and this is the consistency of an unbroken line. Cobra, anagram, Barack. Obama, anagram, obey my. Barack Obama is telling you, obey my cobra. His secret service name, SS, remember the subtext we just showed with the secret service and the apple of, of forbidden fruit? His secret service name, his subtext name, his SS name was renegade. There is an anagram in the word renegade that I will not say, but the middle of that word is Naga. The middle of his code name in the subtext of the SS in the rest of his code name, I will say it. It's read Naga. Read. Well, I'll I'll add a little to what you're saying there. The the word can you speak in code a little bit to flush that out because i have no idea what the you know i know there's something in there you don't want to get censored but maybe you can like spell it out for the special the people on the short bus over here it's in the naga it's in the sub underground it's dark it's particularly uh fertile it has the terra preta and so only those who can interpret and read snake tongue can bring the Naga out of the renegade. And it takes a strong will. I'm a little closer to, to grasping. Uh, but Gabe, what you just brought up about uh, Obama, obey my Cobra makes me think of how, when I used to be like a HR administrator guy for my mom's company, when you, get fired or whenever you leave your job, they have to offer you a continuation of insurance coverage coverage. And it's the, the acronym for that system is Cobra, the Cobra system. <laughs> or how about, how about Cobra the uh, Hebrew, totally, the, the Hebrew word a... Nahash, the Hebrew Nakash or Nahash, the word for serpent. That's the letters NHS, the national health services in you know, the UK. God, I can't believe that one. That's that one's freaky. I would be a bit. I mean, some of this stuff doesn't freak me out. I'm like, yeah, that could be coincidence. That's freaky. But it makes sense because of Asclepius and the, the healing cults. That's it, man. That's it. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I just hope that people have heard other conversations that three of us have done. Uh, well, that, that so V and B interchange, if you look at the Umbrian alphabet or even the Ashen alphabet, Minerva is spelled Men-er-ba because the B serves, the, the letter B serves the function of V in that, in, uh, in the old the alphabets. Here we got some images of the, what's called the Uraeus. And I just want to, mention how Indians, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, all supposedly kept serpents in their temples alive and are said to have treated them with respect. There's the temple of Asclepius in Rome, where the legend of the temple's founding relates that the proprietary propitiatory rites of a large serpent, which is one of the God's attributes slithered 
from the sanctuary and hid in the Roman ship. Certain that this was a sign of the gods' favor, the Roman delegation quickly returned home where there was a a plague raging, and as they were on the river Tiber and about to reach home, uh, Rome, the snake crawled out of the ship and disappeared from sight on the island, which marked the site where the temple was to be built. And so the legend goes that they built the temple and dedicated it as soon as possible, and then the plague ended. But there's tons of legends like that. Uh, then you have the Phoenicians and Egyptians adoring the serpent, supposedly keeping them keeping two alive at the in Thebes, in one of their temples, it was adored at Eleus- Eleusis, <laughs> Epidaurus, and they had one living at the Acropolis in Athens. The gods Neph, Hermes, and the Agathodemon were described by the emblem of the serpent. There's, in the worship of Priapus, this uh, old school researcher, Payne Knight, says... As far as these Egyptians' remains lead us into unknown ages, the symbols they contain appear not to have been invented in that country, but to have been copied from those of some other people still anterior, who dwelt on the other side of the Ethrian Ocean. One of the most obvious is the hooded snake, which is a reptile peculiar to southeastern parts of Asia, but which I have found represented with great accuracy on the obelisk of Ramesses, and also observed frequently on the isaiah table so most indian groups have a serpent in some form or another ouroboros the tail in his mouth symbol for eternity um <laughs> the serpent is found on very nearly the oldest of the buddhist monuments the hooded snake or cobra that's native to india not egypt but is found on all kinds of egyptian icons so the fact that this buddhist foreigner in e- is in egypt shows that there's some transmission of Buddhist worship that came to Egypt before before the hieroglyphs were added or created. And that's something to keep in mind. Like, hieroglyphs came after letters, not before. Everything in the mainstream is telling you letters followed hieroglyphics, that hieroglyphics were one of the first kinds of writing. No, the hieroglyphs were added later, were created later because the secret of writing got out. And so I think part of what makes this complicated is there appears to be uh you know the the power center of whatever this system is seems to migrate around and doesn't stay in one spot and dylan's got a way better trail on that and we already brought up like the cobra being specifically a southeast asian thing yeah and so, cultural diffusion is a big thing like right? these empires it's not like they're not interacting with each other right like that's obviously not a, like a mediterranean guy right there that's obviously any like, i'm not denying that this system existed in Egypt or whatever. But what I am saying is that when you look at the hieroglyphs, all of that stuff, it's all based on Greek. It's it. This is the, the and none of this shit exists on the actual megalithic temples. That, so what I'm saying is the system that I'm dealing with and that Mediterranean stuff, that's pre dynastic Egyptian. You're not going to see little fancy pants, you know, people who are in love with themselves, you know, doing this shit on the walls with their fancy writing and all that stuff. No, because back then this system was kept secret, right? You're not going around in Cosa Nostra and telling everybody about the fucking mob secret and living to talk about it. No, you get taken out if you do that shit. So this was how they maintained trade routes, secrets of how to navigate, et cetera. But while you're doing this in Egypt, I just wanted to remind people, you don't have to pull this 
up if you want, but Asclepius, it's literally roots in the, the Hebrew, Esculab, and that's fire, esh, but they transliterate it as an esh, but that is actually an A, right? So you have A-E-S, right? Kulapius, fire, all, father. That'd be kaf, lamed, aleph, bayit, right? And what I wanted to just give you this, remember how you're talking about the abyss? Abyss. Father of the abyss, abyss. Even though it's just the I-U-S is just a Latin termination and it's anecdotal, it's there in the word. Gabe, you look like you're about to yeah. jump in. So, so we were just talking about hieroglyphs and the the secret of writing. Talking about the secret of writing, getting out into uh, one interesting thing about hieroglyphs is they went through the hands of Athanasius Kircher. I believe that he is a bottleneck of a great amount of technological. Um, uh, advancement and uh, a blackmail market. I think that Roku's Basilisk, uh, Museum of Contraptions, he is the bottleneck of the microscope. He was the first person to uh, find the microscope and he named them some fun that's like, you're seeing a penicus. It's literally called the first thing he found under a microscope is you're seeing a penicus. This kind of humor is a, this is like the fingerprint of the comics. These guys are working on a subtext, a subliminal messaging through the ages, and it's so consistent. I think Roku's Basilisk and the entire formula of what that is, a blackmail market of industry of all the secrets behind one big door, is an Athanasius creature's hand. And I think that is what Sylvie is signifying with all of this. Hail to the Mechbot, hail to the Mechbot, hail to the Mechbot, Pandora, whatever the 17 Deus Ex Machina of the age. It's always been controlled by the Kircher, Roku's Basculus, controlled of uh, full spectrum dominance. It's the old recipe. We just are finding the res- the receipts and the consistency of it. It's fascinating. Uh, Braden's complimenting your calligraphy there, Dylan. I do enjoy when you bust out the whiteboard. Gotta love that. You know what? Sometimes you have to do it. Sometimes you just gotta, I I can't, I can't, it's hard to, you know, this stuff requires looking at it, right? Like a lot of this stuff almost fits the, what you were showing us, Dylan, you were showing, it almost spells like almost Asclepius, but also I was seeing Roku's Basilisk fitting in the, the, list that you were flashing by the way while we were on the topic i was thinking of it and you were showing symbols that almost spelled the word roku's basilisk ambassador is king right uh and so you have this like jesus is king type of thing and the basilisks are also the dragon they're they're letting you know that it's the same archetype at different parts of the year and because people have been treated like, uh, you know, the yes. real profane unwashed masses are the ones that believe this is a historical stuff, even though it's observably written in the Middle Ages. But all of these works come from stuff pre-common era, right? And they're, they're rehashed. Even the Therapeutic, they're rehashing stuff that's 
uh, more ancient than they were. And then the Christians, as Eusebius admits, got their writings from the, uh, the Therapeutes, the Gospels and Epistles are come, come from Egypt. They admit that. And it's crazy is when you talk about it, the amount of ignorance out there, there are people that actually object to that. And they'll say that what that by me citing Eusebius or Eusebius, however it's pronounced, because that Upsilon um, is accented. So it functions like an F, even though it looks like a U. They're so incredulous, yet we're using the very work of the fathers themselves. Like this is your entire tradition is dependent on these people. Why are you making us look like we're the bad guys when we're showing you what's available in the historical record? If even that is historical, because a lot of this stuff, we're looking at copies of copies and even the oldest copy might date to like the middle ages, you know? And I like that PK is describing what Roko's basilisk is. The, it's a the, thought. Gabe the, likes to reference this, but for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a thought experiment that says that an otherwise benevolent artificial superintelligence or AI in the future would create a virtual reality simulation that, and then like seed the, um, somehow seed the past with its own components that will lead to its own creation. Something like that. It's a. It's really goofy. There's, it's it's very creepy pasta, like the story about the guy who came up with the idea and posted on internet message boards, and they you know felt like it was messing with them. That it was, uh, and people who talked about it felt like they were being gaslighted by the future omniscient AI. But Gabe, what were you about to say? <laughs> uh. I think that Roku's Basilisk uh, is riding on scientific optimism all the way to the horizon. It's like we know that people are always going to believe that there's a priest class that has magic that we don't understand and that they will all knowledge power. It can be dressed up as Matrix. It could be dressed up as a future AI. It could be dressed Uh, we're getting the delay is too bad, Gabe. Roku's basilisk that goes back to app. We're gonna we're gonna have to uh, maybe relegate you to to text chatting in the I live. Chat. I'm sorry, man. We're just it's not working. Like uh, cutting out halfway through sentences, the delay. We're gonna have to try. We're gonna have to try to tag you in another time. So sorry, buddy. I don't mean to cut you off. It's just I, if I can understand it and I, I'm i a professional Gabe oh, translator, it's not all, good for the audience. All's well, buddy. Hold on. Before he goes, Gabe, you need to be writing some of this shit down too because Gabe always comes up with these like these these slogans or like these like scientific optimism. That could be like the chapter, the title of a chapter. It's just so it's so funny when he does this. You need to be writing this shit down too, man. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, where's the Gabe Substack? That's what we need. So I have this slide up though on the screen of this is the temple at Avebury or Avebury, and we got to keep in mind that the name of this temple was originally Hackpen, which means the head of the ser- serpent or snake's head, and in uh, the the geographical writings of the Greek. Pausanias, he actually refers to a circle of stones in Boeotia from his time that was called the same thing, uh, 
I mean, I don't know if it was called hack pin, but it was referred to as a snake's head or serpent's head. So this, this is a old, old idea, the serpent's head and the church and the circle or like the, uh, the umphalos, the sacred center of a particular group of people or culture. And, and Avery or Avery is uh, a beauty without the aspirate, which would be that, that C, right? So it would be like, instead of like, uh, Avery or Abiri, it'd be Kabiri, which is the Phoenician Titans. Well, that and if you consider the Phoenician, Etrusc- Etruscan, Hebrew similarity of all those languages, Buri just means like town. That's a, a suffix that is applied to places where people live. But it's essentially Albury. Abury, Albury, Alb being the Hebrew word for serpent. So there's like a lot of different ways that the idea of the serpent shows up in Abury and the stone circles. So I wanted to point that out. Now here, this is Sophia at uh, Kelsis and the goddess Sophia. So I'm, I'm with Godfrey Higgins in that I don't trust the sources that were contemporary to him or the ancient sources as to what a an Ophite Gnostic is or what they do. But what he says about them is that they seem to have placed at the head or nearly at the head of all things and most intimately connected with the serpent, a certain, a certain Sophia. He says this is a translate translation of the concept of Buddha into Greek. Now, I'm not sure exactly what he means by that. Cause Buddha, like I, it's most commonly we'll say that that word means awake or enlightened. So maybe that's supposed to be, what he's talking about that Sophia meaning wisdom, enlightenment and wisdom going together. But uh, the Buddhas are always under that old Cobra Capella, that serpent head. And we just saw pictures of the Uraeus from ancient Egypt. There's a snake coming out of people's head. That's Arke wisdom, Ross wisdom, Resh, the head, all the same thing. Uh, the serpent being an emblem of the logos or Jesus Christ was definitely attributed to the Ophites who said that the serpent or the logos was the cause of all the arts of civilized life, which I kind of referred to that before the apple of knowledge, there is no productive thought. It was all just sort of uh, fruitless ignorance. So this is important though, because being the cause of all the arts of civilized life, <laughs> it's therefore wisdom that totally connects you to all of the goddesses of wisdom with the same attribute, like Isis being the giver of the knowledge of crafts, uh, Pallas Athena being the one who teaches people how to sail and teaches them how to create a plow and so many other countless examples of this with the goddesses of wisdom, the uh, cause of the arts of civilized life. This is totally unprompted or it's not unprompted, but it's kind of like impromptu and it's okay if the answer is no. But would it be okay if I read a portion of like uh, Justin Martyr's apology to Emperor Definitely. Adrian? Because the, the, the thing is, is you're referring to the logos, right? The word, wisdom, all this stuff. Well, he, he, he admits that like in making excuses for Christianity and Jesus, so it's like, well, you have your mercury. You have the logos and mercury. Why oh, yeah, can't we have Jesus? Your, uh, this was in your checkmate article. Yeah. And so he wrote, and this is translated by William Reeve in 1716 AD, in saying that all things were made in this beautiful order by God, what do we seem to say more than Plato? When we teach a general conflagration, what do we teach more than the Stoics? 
By opposing the worship of the works of men's hands, we concur with Menander, the comedian. And by declaring the Logos, the first begotten of God, our master Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin without any human mixture, to be crucified and dead, and to have rose again and ascended into heaven, we say no more than this, than what you say of those whom you style the sons of Jove. For you need not be told what a parcel of sons the writers most in vogue among you assigned to Jove or Jove. There's Mercury, Jove's interpreter, in imitation of the Logos in worship among you. There's Asclepius, the physician, smitten by the thunderbolt, and after that, ascending into heaven. There's Bacchus, torn to pieces, and Eteocles, or Hercules, burnt to get rid of his pains. Then there's Pollux and Castor, the sons of Jove by Leda, and Perseus by Danae. And not to mention others, I would fain know why you've always, uh, why you always deify the departed emperors and have a fellow at hand to make an affidavit that he saw Caesar mount to heaven from the funeral pile. So he said that's, uh, that, that's Semiramis or Helen turning into a dove and flying away after being crucified. It's the same thing. Yup. And so he says, as to the son of God called Jesus, should we allow him to be nothing more than a man? Yet the title of the son of God is very justifiable on account of his wisdom, considering that you have your mercury in worship under the name or the title of the word and messenger of God. So I just wanted to put that out there. Everybody knows what Christianity is. Nobody in the Roman Empire persecuted Christians for being Christians. All of that shit, you people, your ancestors or whoever did this, made that shit up and bared false witness. And that's why there is such disparity between the ancients, the Dark Ages people, and then us now. Because... Us now is living in total wilderness of mirrors, fantasy land that has no grasp on actual history. Now, if you want to call this all, all this stuff forgery, that's fine. But when you do that, at least give examples of why you think that is, as I have done. Right. Because Godfrey Higgins noticed somebody mentioned the corruption in Justin Martyr's work that his work was tampered with. So either Justin is the corrupt person who didn't know the language well enough to forge it properly or somebody, the copyists manipulated his work to suit their whims. But that apology is allegedly historical and that's what's in it. Admitting that Jesus comes from the Mercury archetype, the logos. Yeah. And that's a perfect example. I want to throw this on the, Oh, go ahead. Can I throw Okay, it's torturing me. I just got to say, affidavit, an affidavit is an epidemic. They're basically the same word. We just had an epidemic of false witness. We just had an epidemic of false witness, y'all. It's the same fucking word, epidemic and affidavit. They just gave birth to a new antichrist. We bear false witness. We all the bunch of people out there are going to write affidavits that some corona just came down from heaven. The influence, influence, it's just repack affidavit, epidemic, same thing. The corona, the crown, the raja, the king, the ras, the wisdom, all of it, it's all connected. 
Yeah, what you just said is really profound that there will be like we're we're looking back on the alleged history of this particular religion, Christianity, and bringing scrutiny scrutiny to the claims that are just taken as common, like commonplace, common sense beliefs that Rome crucified and uh, and persecuted. And that stuff is not true. It's like, again, this the same thing as the idolatry of attributing the devil or the evil principle to the serpent and then using that as a, a boogeyman, as a scapegoat, as a something to blame on that's external. It's the same thing as creating the false narrative of the victimization or persecution. Like, uh, <laughs> there's and we're actually there's seeing a pattern. It for, yes, there's a pattern. Because the same way you never see any laws in the in the Roman laws that like direct people to persecute Christians, this same way you also never say it in the modern thing. Where do they? Th- where do you think the modern ones that everyone's quick to point out get it from? Where there's not one directive in a recent thing that happened in the 20th century directing anybody be exterminated. You see what's going on here? This is a pattern that has been used. Oh, you're, you're talking our, about the, uh, the, the, don't even mention it. They, they, people, ha- yeah, people have to be smart enough to know what we're talking about, but this is the, this is the problem we're dealing with is this is happening over and over and again. And if you don't know this, it's a playbook, you're, you're doomed to be victims to it. <laughs> and the, the plague of the epidemic is the false witness victimhood of they're, they're trying to hurt me. Or something along those lines. And, you know, it's happening to me instead of taking personal responsibility. It's actually like a super uh, psychological basic thing that I think we're if we are here to learn something as incarnated spirits, it's that exact deal that no one's doing it to you. It's just you and God. And you are going to either receive the, the blessings of doing things the correct and upright way in the process through which God would create or nature operates, or you're going to be receiving the wrath or the judgment or the, you know, the fruits of sin, which is death or degeneration by going against what is good, true and beautiful. It's like, it all boils down to that, but yeah, there's a, that is the actual sorcery chance. That is it. It's not this hocus pocus, Harry Potter shit. It's getting mass amounts of people to do shit that's inimical to their interests behave in ways that actually are not beneficial for them and they don't even realize it and that's the that is the sorcery and it all starts with lies and bearing false witness and that's why i think or i believe because i don't know for sure but i've just looked at this from a macrocosmic perspective for so long the panacea that is the cure all is truth and if you could only sum up truth in one word it's facts doesn't matter what we think about them but just put the facts on the table and if what you say or claim is not a fact that's fine but it has no business in an education curriculum or being proliferated by supposed people or uh, institutions of authority you know that we are that are tasked to literally keep us safe and if there weren't people out out there, you know, saying what really happened during the lockdowns and if things progress in a certain way where the Internet is scrubbed of records of that type of thing, the future people will believe that just like modern people believe the story of 2000 years ago about Rome. So it's very important that we hang on to uh, and publish 
things that hold and respect the truth. That's good. That's a really good side tangent that we just took ourselves down. I'm going to return to the notes though. We're plugging through. We got just a little more left. Speaking of which, the very next image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's the NHS national health services. <laughs> uh, so back to the, uh, the idea of the O fights, they basically, they say that the serpent of Genesis was the logos and Jesus logos is design divine wisdom. That's the same as the Buddha of India. Um, but doesn't Teth, the letter Teth that I have up here, this is the Phoenician letter Teth means the Hebrew version of it anyway, means to wrap around. So, but that's also a cross. There's literally in the letter that looks like a cross also means to wrap around. Like this letter itself has the idea of the, uh, the brazen serpent in it. And it's even numerically the Teth or Tet is the number nine. And that's like, then that's the number that always returns to itself. And in Greek and Etruscan, that teth takes that form. I think you all know what that is. Tut. Tutates, tot, tat, thoth, whatever. So teth means to wrap around. There's a cross in the letter or there's a circumpunct. The uh, Nehustan, the brazen serpent, as it's called in the Targum, is a savior. It's probably a serpentine crucifix. And Justin Martyr, who you just brought up, calls the Nehustan, the brazen serpent that Moses lifts up in the wilderness, he calls it a cross. <laughs> Was it a brazen cobra? But the interesting thing about the philology of the word Nehustan is that, at least in Higgins' day, it, couldn't, it wasn't understood by Hebrew or Arabic scholars because the first part of the word is Hebrew and the second part is Persian. The NHS is Hebrew, Nakash. But the TN is Persian or an Oriental word. It's basically like uh, where you have the word Stan at the end of a place name. So Nehustan, meaning serpent, on uh, the second word place. So we have basically the place of the <laughs> uh, of the logos, potentially. But I, this is one I wonder what you have on this. Because one thing Higgins references is... NH or none hey meaning mind which is also the same word as Noah by the way uh, but I I can't really find Noah a, is a knower exactly but I really can't find any receipts on that online of uh, none hey referring to mind but I can see how with what they call a rotacism which is the the possibility of the letter R becoming the letter N then Noah Nun hey becomes resh hey ruach the holy ghost or the divine wind aka mind so i wonder about that but essentially if we're calling the the brazen serpent the nehustan if this is the place of the divine mind or the place of the head or of wisdom that's the same idea as golgotha the place of the skull that so jesus in the on the cross is identical to the brazen serpent being raised up by uh Moses in the wilderness. Interesting, interesting stuff. There's, there's well, you some, go ahead. You have the, uh, so I, I don't know about the receipts of the NH. And so when you see that it might be uh, a typo, there's any number of things. It might just be wrong. Uh, it does bring to mind. He references it more than once, actually. 
Okay, and, so H be in mind. I have to go find where else in the book he might prove it out better in an earlier version of it. But if you look at nos uh, in Greek, it'd be like N O U S. That means mind. So it might be somebody getting cute with that word. Um, but yeah. Okay, that makes sense. S and H can swap. You got nous or nos, which is the Greek word for mind. Yeah. So one way or another, we can kind of philologically find our way to Noah being the divine. I want to slide or, in the in the radar here. The Cypress copper mines are the source of copper. It's where it all comes from. I got I got to put I got to blow your mind first. Get ready, okay? Get ready. So the uh, the serpent being the emblem of the evil principle or destroyer, and the destroyer being the creator. Uh, back to that idea. This is the Greek word, or the, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word alb that Dylan already brought up, which is a word for uh, a snake as well. But it also is cognate to the concept of sorcery or necromancy. And I found in Man, some biblical, I think they're denaturing us. I think the signals are getting denatured in general, but especially from my side. Uh, I'm basically getting phase one of the PCR test on my computer right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like you've been showing me that your mic is muted. I, okay, let me let me start this over. All right. Alb, serpent, O A U B. It's equivalent to B swapping with P, giving you the oaf of Greek, alb, oaf. But check this out. I, I found that not only did Alb AUB refer to sorcery or necromancy, but in Deuteronomy, in biblical scholarship, they compare the usage of the word Alb, where it is taken to refer to a water bottle and its gurgling sound, as basically connecting the word Alb with the idea of ventriloquism or throwing the voice. So in this word, you have serpent, you have necromancy and sorcery, and you have ventriloquism, which makes you wonder what the priests were getting up to with their statues and brazen serpents. Is their ventriloquism being done to persuade gullible followers that a god is speaking through the idol? Because I know you've been like connecting ventriloquism and necromancy, and I've just found it in a word. Albra cadabra. <laughs> I got it, man. Oh, my gosh. Chance. Thank you, Chance. Okay. Belly talk. Ventriloquism. Check this out, buddy. And Socrates is the base Birenbao in a capoeira ritual. Ah, oh, they're going to slide. They're going to zap me. The, the Socrates is holding the biggest beard. It is. He's holding it to his stomach. And when you wah-wah the beat and bow, you're doing belly talk. It's ventriloquism. And it's beautiful. In the string that we play is the cat gut. The cat got your tongue. Dude, everything about my symposium work is coming through in Capoeira, and you just reinforced it to the max with this gut talk. And then one more thing. Uh, some... Groups of Gnostics used gourds for anal uh, suppositories and uh, to to flush out the brass serpent. So the bubbling of filling a gourd with med medicinal waters to flush out your colon would be, uh, you're talking out your backside. 
there's some scientific optimism for you, y'all. Let's get behind that. <laughs> Real quick. <laughs> Before we move on, you highlighted something that is a technique that most people don't understand is that when you're trying to figure out some of these words, they're very cleverly disguising two words from different languages. So in order to get the whole concept, you have to be able to recognize both words. And only somebody who's brought to a certain level of learning can do that. And so I think the variation of the system is a result of that. So that if one variant of it gets uh, one variant of the alphabet, one variant of the symbolism gets figured out and exposed and they all get put to death or whatever, the rest stays intact because they won't be able to figure out the others unless they have made themselves to a point of learning where they can understand the others. So I just wanted to put that on there because you moved over that really quickly, but it's an important fact. There's that. And then like, that sounds very plausible to me. And then there's also the, one of the ways that the system gets expanded and, and balloons out is also that the, they look for wordplay, especially between different languages to find meanings that they didn't originally intend in the writings. And then that's supposed to reveal some kind of divine wisdom or the logos giving the wink and the nudge and the nod, which anybody that's done any kind of creative endeavor that was uh, large scale and long term will know that we'll know that that literally does happen. <laughs> that meaning that you didn't realize gets encoded into something you create and that that actually and that it reflects the intention, but expands the intention and it teaches you stuff that you thought you were, you thought you were the one doing it and something's coming through that's beyond you. So when we're dealing with language, that's definitely the case. There's a lot going on. Okay, so this is fun. This is the uh, the cobra, the yoni, and the linga. They are seemingly the only emblems that the early Buddhist monuments had before you know time progressed. And Higgins says that he thinks that the uh, the very earliest had no icon other than just the god represented seated and naked, uh, contemplative and unornamented. So the cobra united with the yoni and linga, that's what you see here in even modern uh, Buddhism and Hinduism uses this a lot. It symbolizes the destroying power with the deadliest serpent, the cobra, and then the creating power of the united principles, the yoni and the linga, the egg being, uh, <laughs> there's like an egg shape here that's on these things. That's the umphalos. It's an egg. It's a, it's a linga. It's like all of these things kind of rolled up into one. They also call this shape an arga, which is the same word as the ark, which is the preserving of nature. So all of like, there's a lot of layers to this, but basically by degrees, the emblems increase in long period over long periods of time. So if we, this is Higgins, I'm quoting here. He says, if we suppose only one emblem to be admitted in a generation and 30 generations or 1000 years, there would be 30 emblems. A single new emblem in a generation would not alarm any worshippers, and thus the abuse might creep on till it arrived at the state in which we find it in both India and in the Romish church. The Protestants, remember Higgins is writing in like 1829, the Protestants are doing the same thing now. The last generation introduced pictures into churches. The cross is now following in order. It's like back in his time, all of this iconography of crosses everywhere, 
for Protestantism was not a thing. And keep, let's keep that in mind, how the Protestants split off and they they uh, did away with at first all of these extra icons and things that the Catholic and the Romish church had going on in spades. So basically the slow creep of innovations proceeds and <laughs> as Higgins says, figments of nonsense go on increasing till some intrepid fanatic takes offense at them and preaches against them and a bloody civil war then arises about nothing and the emblems and the beautiful temples which contain them are destroyed. <laughs> so I'm going to now go through a progression and show just kind of like just using this, using Buddha and the serpent as the example. And this is something I think you'll see in as you compare religion and mythology chronologically where the artifacts land in the timeline, that this is something that legitimately happens. And I want you to be aware of this so you can see it and know what you're seeing as things expand. But first you have Buddha He's black. He's seated, seated, cross-legged, naked, no ornaments. These are the the oldest statues of Buddha. Tend to look like this. That it can be dated the furthest back. This is uh, maybe this one might not be one of the oldest ones, but this is an example of it. You know, this, this is potentially the first stage, unless it was preceded by just straight up the uh, the linga or the stone pillar anointed with oil. This is where the anointed savior derives and also where the, the word lingua for language and linga for phallus. This is the logos. It's the word and the emblem of the word would have been, yeah, the phallus or the, the pillar anointed with oil. So secondly, you'll get Buddha with he's clothed. He's maybe slightly ornamented and he's got the cobra capella. The, the Naga hood, the, the snake head. And then after that, you start to see him accompanied with many figures, men, women, children, animals, but he has not yet become a monster or it's, there's nothing that's like, there's typically nothing that's like completely impossible or doesn't exist in nature. But then next you get the multi-headed Cobra, but then, but no other monsters with it. <laughs> and eventually after Buddhism comes Krishna with, as Higgins puts it, every absurdity that can be conceived where there's just a lot going on. And so this progression basically shows how uh, it starts simple and gets layered on by degrees. And there's and also not is just a termination. N.A. is just like an Asiatic termination. So the root of that word is Krish. And as we've already shown, the S and the S.H. are interchangeable. The, the same letter serve the same function. You'd have to just, you'd have to know. And so Krish is just Kris, which is the same root of Christ, meaning good. Exactly. And so, okay. So as Higgins also points out that there's a phase in this, in an early stage where the degree of skill and the workmanship is way way more uh extreme compared to later stuff that gets worse and worse in quality and theoretically these are some this is the work or the hand-me-downs of the whoever the learned race was that invented this system and created the cycle of the neros and this is where we need to talk about the neros for a moment or the because 
we're talking essentially about the renovation of nature and the goddesses of wisdom are all about that. That's like its own show, the renovation of nature cyclically or periodically. But what, what sparked my entire intention to have this conversation and all this is just a build up to me popping this question and seeing what everybody thinks is did the mythos contain the Nero cycle of renovation of nature of reincarnating saviors every certain number of years where you do away with the previous version of the savior and now you have the new guy and we see this like with the example of Islam coming about 600 years after Christ. And my question is, was there an, a fail safe in the oldest in, intentional version of this system? Like the prehistorical version of this system, a fail safe that was maybe a way to attempt to reduce layers of idolatry through rebooting the system, like abolishing the previous icons, bringing the system back to its simplicity and getting rid of whatever fetishism has come about in hundreds of years, starting from scratch, new version, new savior, just, just the guy, no more symbols. And then rebooting every 600, 650, 608 years. Cause that's what I think might be happening. If you look at say like <laughs> compare Hinduism and Islam, you know, or, or Buddhism and Islam, Islam is a later branch off of the same tree as these other two, but way less uh, icons and symbols and stuff because it's less old. The older a system gets, the more corrupt it gets. That's just human nature. That's like life. That's the nature of life. <laughs> the, the more corrupt, in my opinion, could potentially be measured in how much idol worship there is. You know, the temple with 25,000 rats that, that uh, Hindu worshipers go to and believe that they're the reincarnations of the followers of their goddess. And they're like actually praying to the rats and weird stuff like that. Uh, maybe harmless, but is it really harmless? Uh, is is that really what we want in life? Was there originally a plan in place that would stop that uh, inevitability of that sort of corruption creep by rebooting? And were the priest class responsible for uh responsible for those reboots in a positive sense. Like they're helping the, like the unlearned or the immature spirits of the other people in mankind to not fall into the human tendency to misunderstand the stuff of their ancestors and kind of make a, make idols out of it. You get what I'm, you get what I'm saying with this? Like, I wonder yeah. that's part of the renovation doctrine. I think that's a more positive um, outlook on it to try to, uh, not to, not to try anything just to like, you don't want to believe people are this bad to, to <laughs> well, maybe whoever stuff. was wise enough to come up with all of the system at the very beginning, not the people who get it as hand-me-downs, you know, maybe they were better intentioned. Who knows? Yeah. And, and I'm all about that. And, but without evidence, I can't, you know, appealing to motive is a logical fallacy. So I don't try to do that. And, but I do appreciate that motive is important, but if I can establish something as a lie, I don't really care why the person lied. I don't even necessarily blame the person because who knows what kind of pressure they're under where they decide that that's the necessary course of action. I just say, well, that's a lie. And the, my biggest problem with all of this is not that it's 
fictitious. My problem with all of it is that it's being passed off as historical fact. And the only reason they do that is because if you didn't believe it was historical fact, it would just be Lord of the Rings. Now, guys like us, we can appreciate the scriptures because we don't need them to govern our behavior. We try to live right and do the right thing because it's part of our nature. But some people, they'll only do the right thing if they have the fear of punishment in them. That's why laws are so beneficial to them, because if there's not that threat of serious prison time or whatever else, then it's no big deal to them. They'll violate morality, whatever, you know. So I think that is what religion is um, for the majority of people. And that's why they lie and say it's a true story, because then it gives it the weight that if you don't do this, this will happen to you. You need to have the fear of God in you to stop you from behaving like an animal. And so I understand it. But from from what I'm looking at, it doesn't benefit us in any way, shape or form to accept lies as truth, no matter how well intentioned they are. Yeah. Uh, and good point about appeal to motive, too. It's definitely not a provable thesis, but I try I try all the time to just put myself. But I appreciate that, so. the perspective because it is a it is it is a more beneficial. It's a more it's a it's a nice thing to think about. Like it's a it's a, it's a better outcome knowing that it's all going to. And, you know, maybe you're you are you always say, what's that thing you say? The biggest conspiracy is that everything's going to be all right. Yeah. So there, so there is that. There is that for sure. We're just in a phase where in order for that to happen, somebody needs to force that hand and it will happen. It will get resolved. Like, I don't think you should do away with religions. I think the religions are good. Just like I think certain part aspects of the government are good. I'm not saying that we don't need framework and that those aren't beneficial to society and systems aren't beneficial. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff that has been built up around it that is not beneficial. And if we can remove that, the system can go back to being healthy. Religion can go back to being healthy. Government can go back to being healthy. Everything can go back to being healthy. So in that sense, I think you are right. But I don't think it's something that happens. Yeah, I don't think it's something that happens unless people take action. Well, and what you're describing is alchemical in that in the, you know, if we compare that alchemy allegory to the religious or mythology system, you have the mercury or the solvent in an alchemical process, be like alcohol, for example, that after it does its part, whenever you have the final product, the tincture, you don't actually have a philosopher's stone or a purified extract or exaltation of what the natural compound was until you remove the alcohol or the solvent. So like, and you see in most people's, uh, and I'm not saying that makes their products ineffective, but like alchemically specifically, the last step is to actually remove the mercury or the solvent. So in that way, religiously speaking, the literal belief in an external savior and a historical external savior is a step in that alchemical process of man's maturation. But then the, like a a next step, (laughs) a a more enlightened position or the, the next place to go would be you remove the external, you remove the mercury, you remove the literal savior. And now you have just the light of that as a concept or as a energy that's 
within you and was always there. But the process of finding it required that you see it out there. So it's just like, <laughs> can I jump in? Yeah. yeah can yeah, I jump yeah. in real quick? There, I, make no mistake about it. If you ask me, is Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior? I can swear to God and I can truthfully say, yes. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ did die and get resurrected in the allegory. But it's the Son. And the Son is our Savior. And that root, sal, salvation, salt, is our Savior. A lot of people don't know. Do you guys know what the one detail is that enables a culture to get out of a nomadic lifestyle? Salt. The ability to salt and preserve foods so you can take it on long journeys, so you don't have to keep following animals around. That is what gave, it's one of the many things that gave the Etruscians uh, a decided, a, a, that's why they became an empire. They had the metals, they had the salt beds at the mouth of the Tiber River, which the Romans eventually went to war with them over, allegedly. I don't really believe that so much as mainly because I think what's being covered up is that what you think of Rome before the common era is Etruscian and all these things that you think are Roman. That's all like common era stuff. And that's, what's being covered up. But the point is I want to make it very clear. Like that there is a historical savior. These stories are true, but the details of them are not historical. And that is what has been misrepresented about these works. And I think that's what, uh, I think that if, if, if you can look at it with a positive outlook and not worry about who's lying to us and what, what's a lie, you know, as long as you can say, Hey, I understand this is not historical, but there's value in it. And I appreciate the allegories and the messages, but don't try to justify enforcing a way of life upon me because you believe that these things are historical and that you've got the right to do that to me. You know, I want to add on to what you started with that. Cause I, I also would say that the being the firstborn of the first cause, that which we would, would call Jesus Christ, that's also my Lord and Savior. My position is more that not that the son doesn't also fulfill that role in the external, but the son being an emblem of it. But I actually, and this is just my own personal experience, personal psych, like uh, not psychedelic and, and non-substantiatable experiences, but like I... I think I've met or been spoken to or received messages, the divine messenger from a, a a consciousness that is the first consciousness that emanated out of the the void or the nothingness or the all that is or uh, the invisible God or creator. I totally. So I always I'm glad that we came around to that because I, I don't want people to like look at our sort of uh, disputing of the details that have been offered by the mainstream as that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Actually, my goal has always been to, and this process has got me closer to that, got me closer to in faith or in, uh, in, in trust and in, in the truth that there is, <laughs> there is a Jesus Christ or there is a Hermes or there is an Odin or there is a Buddha. There is a being that is uh, the trunk of the tree of life that all of these lives are branches and leaves off of. But it's just way bigger than you could ever fit into the story of one person. And why would that only have happened at one time in history? And no, 
it, it has to be renovated. The story has to be renewed in different eras so that people never lose sight of it or can relate to it on the terms of the civilization in which they're in. And I think there may be uh, personally, I think that there is some unseen force that is responsible for seeding this information through cultures, regardless of who's the one carrying it or who's the one whose mouth or lips is coming out of or hand is being written by. I think that there's something to it. I think there is a, a logos or divine wisdom that, that acts in yeah, God. Us. God created the son, the son yeah. of God, literally yeah, yeah. did everything. So yeah. But I, yeah. So yeah. And Gabe, I, I'm sorry. I went first because I know there's a delay, but now I think we should let Gabe take it away. If, if he's, if he's willing to, and we can still hear him. Uh, I don't have much to add. Oh, there I go. I get zapped right away. Uh, just last night, I was reading from Plato's Republic, book three, where they talk about eugenics. And they actually put a deviation in the in the sand between uh, Asclepius's text, which involve uh, uh, Pramnian wine, and also a specific physician who I think his name encodes the something uh, snus, a medicinal snus versus those who would cut and use salves. And there's this deviation in two types of medicine, one for the poor and one for the rich. And so these eugenics programs, it's baked into Plato's Republic too. And I was just treading, yeah, yeah, eugenic. But uh, what's fascinating is in this weave, they actually identify Asclepius as a statesman. And I think that is an important kernel we could all use today in and build out from that. There's a lot of information in the fact that Asclepius has always been considered. This might be the real divide between church and state, that there's real faith healing. And then there's what Asclepius is always. And we lost you at the end there, but there is that is a part of the archetype, the the lawgiver, whether it's Numa of Rome or or Manu of the Hindus, the M to the N or the N to the M goes on over and over again. Like I realized that the, the alleged Roman King Numa, who was said to have done away with images or idols for, <laughs> and that didn't go super well, I guess, but that's, that's a, a lawgiver, a new origin point in the story anyway. And that's an anagram for Manu who's a lawgiver or Minos or, all the different versions of that. But I and got one more slide. Real quick, though, just to add on to that, the 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 miracle working stuff is not all bad because people are showing that, you know, your thoughts, you have the power, unfortunately, to make you sick, but also to heal. So there is a degree to this of working miracles with your mind. It's just not as obvious and elaborate and over the top as you see it in the scripture but that does serve a purpose to show you that you know it's like henry ford whether you think you can or think you can't you're right and there's a power that you get from your thoughts and conviction and all that stuff so you know it's not all it's not all bad and it's not all forgery and it's you know some of it is really good it's just being able to look at a document or text or anything else and discern whether what you're looking at is historical fact or if something else is going on. 
I had a client last night for a tuning who was, he was gifted a session and he's not interested in any of this stuff. Had no idea, you know, about my podcast or not a single iota of knowledge about energy work of any kind. Just his girlfriend's mom bought him the session and he had had an ankle injury that was persistent. So he decided to go for it. Young guy, 28. And, uh, I don't know what point was where it was like the, the party trick kind of won him over or the belief factor kicked in. But I remember last night I stuck a fork in the, at the edge of his sacral chakra and where the like guilt energy or shame energy can get held up. And as soon as I touched the fork there, I immediately knew that he had been a C-section baby. He was born of a C-section. And so I just said that I was like, Hey, so you were a C-section, right? And he's like, I was <laughs> and like how, you know, that's not the most common thing, but I knew it because of the the signature and the feeling of the stuck guilt energy, because there's very few reasons why an infant newborn baby would have guilt energy, but coming into the world through an injury to the mother, like a C-section, it does it every time. And there's a whole constellation of, of uh, <laughs> self-sabotaging or injuries or illnesses that are commonplace for people that get born of a C-section. Now, just in case anybody out there was born that way, watch out for a pattern of something that you've been working on for a long time, it, it coming to a, a, at the climax point, all falling apart or going to hell, you know, like going horribly wrong. That's the story of the C-section or just having intrinsic guilt or intrinsic frustration that doesn't really make sense or intrinsic uh, anxiety that all of those type of things, I know I'm being general here, but like, and I, it's specific for individuals, how it affects them. But I just bring that up because Dylan's totally right. The, uh, you like, it's fascinating how you can't separate this idea of the mind and the logos and these topics from, uh, healing and miraculous healing. There is it, such a thing is possible, but a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the therapeutic version was like selling indulgences. It was, uh, more of a racket, you know, and that always, I, I'm, I'm glad that I look into this stuff because it, uh, you know, it helps me affirm my intention to just be good and to only do this uh, if it's actually helping people. And it does. And it does. Uh, it, it helps people frequently. I get a lot of reports back of how things work, but I'm going to just do my last slide here, Dylan. We're almost there. going to start making our way towards the wrap up. Okay, got to reshare because we can't talk about the serpent of Genesis without talking about how in Exodus, God is uh, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, or, or also Aleph, Hey, Yod, Hey, different versions of the name given and translated as God. You get this root of Hey, Yod, Hey, or Hey, Vav, Hey, which Either way, this root means to live, to exist, or to be. And that's the same as hey, vav, hey, a.k.a. Eve. <laughs> uh, one way you might pronounce that hey, vav, hey would be heva or heva. Basically, haiva or heva, that's Shiva. <laughs> that's also a serpent uh, symbol character, destroyer, regenerator character, Shiva, Eve. Uh, the Bacantes, the followers of Bacchus, they were alleged to have invoked Eve by name in their ceremonies. 
And you, of course, have that. We love to bring this up. Maximus Tyrius talking about how when Alexander the Great was going into India, he found a prince who had an enormous snake that was the image of Bacchus that they called Eve. And that's uh, verified also by the writings of Arian. Who and and Higgins says this is exactly what we're informed was done by the Christian Ophites, big snakes, 33 foot long python. But I have to say that in many, many versions of whatever cosmogony you're looking at that comes from science, whether it's the Big Bang being the Brahmin, the egg of Brahm, or what have you, think about how it always ties back to some doctrine from the, the mystery tradition. Like, where does our body come from? What's the creator of our physical bodies and material life biologically? We're told it's the DNA, the double helix. It's literally the serpent wrapping around a pole. There's the physics idea of string theory, vibrating strings or serpents making up all matter. Uh, like all, Whether it's scientific materialism or religion, this idea of the serpent being the emblem of the creative power just comes up over and over again. There's also the the many, many illustrious females of history who are said to have been uh, impregnated while a virgin by a god or the Holy Ghost or or capital G God. And in those cases, it's like always a serpent that's the form that it assumes. Anna, mother of Mary, my favorite example, impregnated by uh, divine inception or divine conception. Mary was was also a virgin mother character, not just Jesus. And a snake allegedly was what brought that uh, seed to, of Mary into her mother, Anna. Anna meaning the year. So anyway, just wanted to put all that on the table too. Eve, life, uh, Yad Vave, the creator. <laughs> They're all the same thing. Like this, this all is allegory of one force that has a process. It's not really separate individuals or characters. Have we ever covered how Yova or Yahweh, Jehovah, it's all the same, uh, different pronunciations of the same name. Have we ever covered how that's spelled in the Targums? Some of them? Probably, but this is the time for bringing it back. Well, it is the time. It is because it's the, the, the end of the year, you know, the, the, the good fellow goodbye, the Janus. So it's spelled Yod Yod. Can you know, see that? And Yod is ten. XX, and you see it in the seal, the sigil of Saturn, as well as symbol of Freemasonry. Just a little, uh, little food for thought. Contemplate that. Tie proof. High proof moonshine right there. <laughs> That's pretty much everything I wanted to share with you guys tonight. I feel like uh, it all worked out. Great conversation, much. guys. I'm really happy that you invited me to be part of it. It was really fun. I'm just glad that I can reliably grab you on a Wednesday night, even without pre-planning. That, that's really helpful. Because <laughs> sometimes I just don't know what I want to do on a vibrant until the day before. And then I start kind of putting it together. And what's funny is like, you guys are probably the only people I talk about this stuff with. Like I, you wouldn't see me like talking about this ever in like the real world with people. So there's always so much to say, you know, it's not like, it's like sometimes you got to release the pressure valve a little bit. 
Yeah, especially with all the research that goes on. Uh, like you have the outlet of your writing, but that's not reflective in conversation. So people check out Dylan's Substack, greattide.substack, right? Dot com. Anything you want to leave them with before we wrap up, either of you two gentlemen? Yeah, I would just say um, if any of this comes across, uh, you know, some of the times I, I, I've, I've heard people who are otherwise really intelligent people, they say when we get together, a lot of the stuff we talk about is over their head. And I would just urge you go through the Spirit World series. It's laid out. You can do it in paperback, ebook, chance narrates the audio books. I like to I like to actually listen to the audio books with the ebooks so I can reference what he's saying. And what you'll 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 constantly it's a, they're living texts. They literally like the amount of I still use them. I still can whenever I come across a subject, I use all my work as like a a search engine. I type in the keywords and I refresh myself and then I add on to it. And that's why I encourage you guys to write down these things you these ideas you have because what you know now, you look at it a year from now, you're going to have educated yourself so much that in a year you can look back on things you learned and then you're going to have even more to unfold and unpack from them. So these are valuable resources and you can promote chance and take care of his family by investing in yourself to go through them. And then you won't be confused or left in the dark when we talk about some of these uh, some, they're not complex, but they seem complex if you don't know, you know, and so that's just something I wanted to encourage people because I, that is kind of something, I, a theme that I come across. Oh, I get that constantly. <laughs> it's not just our episode. That's just typically what someone will say is like, oh, I list, I tried to listen to your podcast, but it went over my head. But that's to me, that's the most interesting thing to listen to. But not everyone's the same. I enjoy and for years would listen to stuff that I felt was over my head, but you just take what you resonate with right then. And you never know what seeds got planted that later you'll be like, Oh, that's what that meant. But that's the journey. Like if we, if everything I did was like only in the realm of stuff that I completely comprehended, understood, I would, uh, I would hate my life. <laughs> you know, like that's no fun at all. I, I really enjoy the process of uncovering, discovering that, which I didn't understand before. And no matter how many times, like, in 10 years, I'll return to this con concept of the serpent and, and the Genesis. And I'm going to have such a elevated take on it from then too. That's part of what makes this living. Yeah. Living text, as you said, and the spirit world books are definitely living text. I use your books the same way. I cross-reference them all the time. Dude, I have to all that you, uh, none of this stuff can be remembered by one man as much as Gabe is kind of like the closest thing in the world we'd have to that. Like, Akashic walking Akashic like Alexandrian library. You can't. You you constantly need to reference stuff. So whatever you do in life, it doesn't matter if it's this type of work. Always chart your progress. Always chart and be very organized with the things you discover about yourself, about your profession. I promise you, by building that foundation, you'll be able to help yourself become better further down the line. But also if you ever want to teach somebody else, you've created a path for them to get to your level so that they don't have to learn shit the hard way. Like you had to. So yeah, and if you think this stuff's hard now, it's never been easier. Like with digital, <laughs> digital tools. I had to, I transliterate shit. So you don't have to, because when I was learning this, 
they don't they don't show you what these letters are, dude. I'm literally when I first started on this, I'm having to reference every single Greek letter, every single Hebrew letter, every single Phoenician letter, every single I it takes so much time. Whereas when I write now, I just put the English letters in parentheses next to them so you know what they are. Yeah, that saves a ton of time. But yeah, you you didn't have imagine being the monk who just had his uh Hebrew, English, Latin lexicon dictionary and that was their only way to cross-reference anything <laughs> you know like we've got it so good this is the time to elevate yourself and also if something goes on and things are removed from the internet or your access to the internet goes sideways what you are keeping for yourself in your own records writing down putting on digital notepads but that are offline that's uh no one can take that from you in the same way you know, and it's it's also fun. This like it is Lord of the Rings to me, <laughs> in a good way. But yeah, but in the best possible way because you appreciate the symbolism so much and you see the value in it. You know, and it kind of does piss you off when you see people perverting it. Oh, I mean, and think about like so in this book, Anacalypsis, Godfrey Higgins, Esquire. By the way, those are posted after he was dead. His wife published them, so he died. He didn't even get to see like anybody's reaction to his work. And he's constantly like, he was maybe the most well-read guy of all time. He's uh, referencing all these other texts and other researchers where for his time, he would have to go to a library or write them and have them send a manuscript or things like that and keep straight all of that information in his head or somehow. And it's not like notes and ballpoint pens and all that stuff was easy <laughs> back in the 1800s, early 1800s late 1700s and now whenever he references say you know some other book on on history that's from contemporary to his time you can go to like the internet archive or other type of uh, book repositories and they have scanned copies of these ancient texts and you can just search for a concept in that book instead of having to comb through the hundreds of pages and hundreds of pages like it's never, it's important, it's important because it's never been the access to figuring this stuff out as it is now. And if we don't do it while we have this access now, there's, as Dylan says all the time, tomorrow's not promised. <laughs> there's no guarantee that all this access to the, the information from our ancestors will remain. And if we don't uh, topple the, the Leviathan of, of the falsehoods of history, then we're just going to continue groping in the dark and playing make believe as a collective like has been going on. So yeah, it's a, it's a holy war. <laughs> and a lot of those texts, they actually have been scanned. You can find them, but Google's not going to return the search because you're, if you're typing in a modern Latin letters, a lot of this stuff could be written in Greek letters or, you know, and it, it's not going to return. You have to actually know what that's the challenge is. You have to know how to spell stuff in other languages to find some of the stuff you, that I find. But I try to do my best to help people get the broadest uh, concept of everything in as tightly packed, no nonsense way as possible. And then if you want to go look off on your own and elaborate on all that stuff, that's that's even part of the own the fun, the personal journey is when you go 
well, that's an interesting claim. Let me see what I can find with that word myself. And then you start doing it. It's like, it takes a whole nother life. That's kind of basically how I started. I was reading all these old texts. I'm like, this can't be, there's no way. And then I look it up. I'm like, sure as hell, there it is right there. Guy's not lying. I verified it for myself. And then once you learn languages, you don't need to appeal to authority. You can, you can read it. Yeah. It's a, and it's a confidence booster to know other alphabets. But okay, guys, y'all stay golden. We're out of here. Dylan, thanks again. Love you, buddy. Gabe. Love you too, guys. Thank you. Let's troubleshoot your uh, your device issues before our next show, and we'll make it good. All right. Good night, everybody. Love y'all. All right, gentlemen. Have an amazing night. Thanks. Big love, y'all.